Imagine that you're reading an article from a legitimate media outlet on what to do in case of a nuclear attack, and you're feeling reassured that it seems like it would be nothing worse than what one would face from an earthquake or a hurricane, bad as that might be. But then you hear from someone who lives in Hiroshima and really knows about nuclear bombs and contradicts those articles by saying... The undertone of the articles, what really sort of got my dander up, was this notion that one would be able to take meaningful actions to moderate or manage the experience of a nuclear explosion, and that your ability to recover once the explosion was over would be orderly, methodical, socially enabled, and that's, that's just insane. Insane? Well, when you hear something like that, your false sense of security starts to slip away, and you suspect that truly, you and he and all the rest of us are sharing the exact same seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Bo Jacobs of the Hiroshima Peace Institute on exactly what's wrong about all those articles telling us that the best way to survive a nuclear attack is to simply duck and cover. Hint, that's not the answer. We'll also have numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than we're likely to hear during tonight's State of the Union address. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 30th, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the United States with this breaking story out of Hawaii. The head of Hawaii's emergency management agency has resigned, and the employee who issued a false missile alert to the state earlier this month has been fired. The official announcement came earlier today, Tuesday, January 30th. On January 13th, the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency conducted a ballistic missile defense drill that mistakenly was broadcast and sent over phones as a this-is-not-a-drill warning of an incoming nuclear attack. It took 38 minutes until this announcement was officially rescinded, during which time the entire state went into panic because they thought that North Korea had finally done it. How this happened is only now starting to come out. At their news conference earlier today, officials confirmed the employee who sent the initial alert, quote, had a history of confusing drill and real-world events, end quote. 
Retired Brigadier General Bruce Oliveira, who spearheaded the internal investigation, said the employee who issued the alert claimed he did not hear the exercise, exercise, exercise message that five other employees in the room heard. Once the alert was sent, Oliveira said the employee seemed confused. He froze, and another employee had to take over his responsibilities. Oliveira said the drill that caused the error was also carried out during the previous shift change with no issues, and similar practice drills have been carried out 26 times in the past with no incident. Oliveira also noted that the employee had performance issues in the past, and there were at least two incidents where he confused a drill with real-life events, a fire and a tsunami incident. In the wake of this mismanagement, it was no surprise Hawaii Emergency Management Agency Administrator Vern Miyagi and Executive Officer Toby Claremont had both resigned. And in a possibly related story, Hawaiian Lieutenant Governor Shan Tsutsui will officially resign his role tomorrow, Wednesday, January 31st, three days after announcing he'd be leaving for the private sector. Tsutsui told Hawaiian News Now the timing of his announcement was linked to his job plans, but the decision does come amid mounting critiques of his leadership style, especially in the wake of this month's false missile alert. Thanks to Nuclear Hot Seat Hawaiian listener Malia Schlesser for her heads up about these latest developments in the story. The Hanford site in southeastern Washington state continues to make news. To recap, on January 18, we learned that 100 workers were being moved out of the trailer village of offices at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation near the plutonium finishing plant. This followed the discovery in December of a spread of radioactive particles in the area. And while officials have stated that the, quote, overwhelming presence of naturally occurring radon in the trailer village offices was causing the problem, that's what an official memo said, any detection of radiation is treated as if it is a potential spread of radioactive particles from the open-air demolition of the plutonium finishing plant. As of last Thursday, January 25th, monitors at Hanford found plutonium and americium contamination, again up to 10 miles from the troubled demolition project, meaning the contamination appears to have spread over a far larger zone of the federal site than initially thought. So what is the Department of Energy doing about this clearly worsening situation? It announced as of Monday, January 29, that they are replacing the managers of the cleanup in a move that they admitted is intended to rebuild confidence with workers and the public and show the project is being safely managed. That's right. Close the barn door after the horses have run out. This is obviously not the end of this story. Regarding the problems in North St. Louis, Scott Pruitt, head of the Environmental Protection Agency, is expected to announce that agency's plans to clean up the radioactive waste in Westlake Landfill. He promised to do it before February, and tomorrow is January 31st, and that's when we are expecting the announcement. The landfill has been on the EPA's national priorities list since 1990, only 28 years. EPA officials may decide to remove the waste entirely, remove it in part, or cap the site, all of which come with their own problems. 
Pruitt is perceived by many as both hiding behind tomorrow's media response to tonight's State of the Union address and trying to get out in front of the expected public reaction to the HBO documentary Atomic Homefront, which is airing as of February 12. If the announcement does come tomorrow or any time this week, we hope to speak next week with Just Moms St. Louis co-founder Dawn Chapman. In New York, that state Supreme Court has rejected motions to dismiss a lawsuit against the Public Service Commission that challenges subsidies for upstate nuclear plants. The lawsuit was brought by Hudson River Sloop Clearwater and others in 2016 against the New York State Public Service Commission, PSC, and nuclear plant owners over ratepayer subsidies to the upstate plants under the Clean Energy Standard. Clearwater alleges that the PSC is not following the law in mandating that up to $7.6 billion in such subsidies over 12 years be given to aging nuclear plants. Clearwater Environmental Director Manajo Green called the ruling a David versus Scalia victory. The case is now headed to trial. And remember always that in David versus Goliath, David won. And pro-nuclear propaganda, uh, pro, uh, uh, pressure articles, pressure articles abounded last week. World Nuclear News had a juicy one about U.S. nuclear industrial groups having submitted a white paper setting out recommendations on how the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission can streamline the licensing of so-called advanced reactors. The Hill ran an article under the headline, Only Trump Can Restore America's Ability to Win a Nuclear War. Dude, nobody wins a nuclear war. Nobody. But of course, it was written by a man named Robert R. Monroe, Vice Admiral, U.S. Navy, retired, who is also the former director of the Defense Nuclear Agency, so what can you expect? And in an effort to advance the tiny nukes movement, under the headline, Can We Make a Nuclear Reactor That Won't Melt Down? You know my answer to that. But then consider the source. It's Forbes, and it's written by their favorite nuclear shill, Conka, 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 James Conka. I always thought that would make great background for an anti-nuclear version of Whack-A-Mole. Always good to know what the other side is up to. Over to Japan, where we're going to catch up with some stories that we just didn't manage to get onto the podcast in the previous weeks. When Beatrice Finn, the leader of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which won last year's Nobel Peace Prize, went to Japan, she asked for repeatedly but was denied a meeting with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. ICANN had asked the Japanese government twice since late last December, citing scheduling conflicts. Besides, what militaristic right-wing warmongering head of a country in his right mind would want to talk with an internationally lauded Nobel Peace Prize winner whose organization is comprised of a coalition of NGOs that involves about 470 groups from more than 100 countries? Nah, nothing to look at here, Shinzo Abe, baby. Just move along. Nuclear-news.net came up with a very interesting catch. 
This comes from a Mainichi news story on airborne radiation levels near Fukushima Daiichi, which remain quite elevated. But what was noticed about the reported story is the assertion within it that the government set radiation exposure levels at one millisievert a year after the accident. But in fact, the government of Japan set the radiation level after the accident at 20 millisieverts a year, not one. So the question comes up, was this a simple error involved in the reporting? Or is it an attempt to revise history and start rewriting it? No word if there has been a correction posted by Mainichi. Two other interesting articles have surfaced dealing with radiation levels in and around Fukushima. The first is an appeal from a Japanese anti-nuclear activist named Atsuji Watanabe. He wrote, The Japanese government is lying to the international community. The radiological situation in and around Fukushima is not safe. This is a long, very well-reasoned, and totally footnoted post that we will link to on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 345. And a mother's testimony, which was posted on YouTube, is under the title, Tokyo Not Fit for Human Habitation. And the transcription is up on nuclear-news.net. The mother featured in this followed a doctor's advice to evacuate from Tokyo due to the ill health of her daughter following the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. The doctor told her that 9 out of 10 of his child patients in metropolitan Tokyo had reduced white blood cell counts due to exposure to radioactivity, and if they moved away, some of them might recover. Again, we will link to this story on our website under this episode. Catching up with Japanese food news, authorities in Fukushima plan to scale down radiation tests on rice harvested in the prefecture. They have replaced full-scale testing with sample inspections in 47 of Fukushima's 59 municipalities. And rice is the only product from Fukushima to be tested systematically. All other agricultural and marine products undergo only sample testing. When the Tokyo Organizing Committee of the Olympic and Paralympic Games sat down at the table for its banquet with the International Olympic Committee on December 12, they served what they labeled delicacies, representing the safety of Fukushima products and the charm of the Tohoku region's abundant foodstuffs. Among the foodstuffs from the disaster-hit areas that were served to the Tokyo IOC banquet were rice, platinum pork, mackerel, beef tongue, apples, and chicken. Yum, yum, eat them up. And Japan has announced that it is planning to encourage its Asian neighbor countries to lift their import restrictions and their radiation contamination tests so that they can buy anew Eastern Japan's agricultural and marine products. Fortunately, thus far, none of those other countries are buying it. Internationally, responding to current events, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has moved the doomsday clock the closest to midnight since the Cold War, 30 seconds closer than last year, meaning it's only two minutes to what they see as the metaphorical midnight, the symbolic point of annihilation for planet Earth and all life on it. In Wales, the Welsh government is launching a 12-week consultation 
to see if anywhere in Wales would volunteer to be the home of a nuclear waste disposal site. Mm-mm-mm. It would have to house the UK's most radioactive material, some of which won't be safe for 250,000 years. Any community that did volunteer would be paid £1 million a year during the selection process, rising to £2.5 million a year once the test boreholes were drilled. There would be long-term payments as well, with construction and operation of an underground facility lasting 150 years before it's left buried between 200 and 1,000 meters below the surface. This is legacy waste, mostly from now-closed nuclear power stations such as Wifla and Angsley and something I can't pronounce in someplace I can't pronounce. Both the Welsh government and the UK government are looking for a volunteer community as our friends in the Welsh Anti-Nuclear Alliance would say, hell no, not here. And if you need a good example of why transporting nuclear waste is not a good idea, here's... Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None that's out of week. This story proves exactly how numbnuts is the problem of transporting nuclear waste. In India on January 17, a multi-axle vehicle which was going towards the village of Kaiga to pick up nuclear waste for disposal met with, oops, an accident. The trailer of the vehicle, which was loaded with a transport flask, they call them instead of cask, a flask, separated and turned upside down. While the Nuclear Power Corporation of India clarified that the flask was empty and there was no nuclear leakage, this is the second such accident involving vehicles meant for transporting nuclear waste in the past three months. In October last year, one such vehicle on the same road fell into a gorge. The vehicle that met with the accident on Wednesday, the 17th, had warning stickers to indicate that it was carrying radioactive material. A lot of good that would do. An alert was sounded, and vehicular traffic was disrupted. Senior officials of Nuclear Power Corporation in Kaiga admitted that the lorry, the truck, was going to Kaiga to bring out the spent nuclear fuel rods. If the accident had happened while the truck was going in the other direction, it would have been truly mobile Chernobyl. And that's why anybody who thinks about transporting nuclear waste over distances, certainly by truck, is this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. In Sweden, that country's environmental court, imagine that, they have an environmental court, says no to the power industry's nuclear waste company SKB's license application for a final repository for spent nuclear fuel in Forsmark. This is seen as a huge triumph for safety and environment and for the Swedish NGO Office for Nuclear Waste Review, the Swedish Society for Nature Conservation, and critical scientists who have been presenting risks of the malfunction of the selected method. Now it is up to the Swedish government to make the final decision, and it is predicted that their leadership will prove to be sane. And even though it's over 30 years since the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster, 
Radiation levels of more than 39,000 becquerels per kilo have been found in Swedish boar meat. That's 26 times the safety limit. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I know that you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this show. That's what we set out to provide at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. Verifiable nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, and footnoted, plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on various aspects of the nuclear industry that the nuclear industry would prefer they and we not know. In order to do this, we incur costs. And that's why I'm reaching out to you for your help. Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue. So if you are grateful from the information you get from the show, help us out by sending a donation so that we can meet our expenses. You can make it a one-time donation of any size or set up a monthly sustaining donation by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red Donate button. For those of you on a budget, and boy, I know what that's about, We've set up an easy, inexpensive way for you to help us out on an ongoing basis. You can buy Nuclear Hot Seat a monthly cup of coffee, meaning send the show a monthly $5, which is just the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. Trust me, it'll all be going into the show, not to any overpriced coffee. You can set up that monthly $5 easily, by going to the website and clicking on the big green donate button. That's NuclearHotSeat.com. Please do what you can to help keep Nuclear Hot Seat going so you get to know what's really going on in the nuclear world. Know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here is this week's featured interview. In the post-Hawaii terror from that false incoming missile alert, a glut of articles have appeared in major papers on how to survive a nuclear war. These, for the most part, cited basic survival in case of a disaster, and also the long-discredited duck-and-cover tactic to survive the blast. They also suggested that afterwards you change into clean clothes, And wash your hair, but don't use conditioner because it might trap radioactive particles. This is so far beyond numbnuts territory that I'll have to invent a new category for it. Fortunately, Truth Out published an honest evaluation of the lies within these articles and the larger truth of the psychological positioning and conditioning they create. Written by our friend and nuclear hot seat interviewee Bo Jacobs, bylined as Robert Jacobs, he is a professor at the Hiroshima Peace Institute and lives in that city. Rather than try to convey to you his excellent analysis, we decided to go straight to the source. Bo Jacobs and I spoke on Friday, January 26, 2018. Bo Jacobs, always a pleasure to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's always great to be on Nuclear Hot Seat and great to be talking with you. You recently published an article in Truthout entitled, We Cannot Survive a Nuclear Apocalypse by Ducking and Covering. Why this subject and why now? 
writing the article was somewhat of a visceral response to this huge rush over the last two weeks of articles advising people what to do in case there's a nuclear explosion or in case there's a missile attack. Many of these that were published right after the errant alert in Hawaii, many of these articles were repeating ridiculous things. And, you know, outside of this specific advice, which it's easy to talk about why a lot of the advice that's given in these articles is facetious and really useless. The undertone of the articles, uh, you know, I've studied the Cold War period a lot, so it really reminded me of some of the text of civil defense literature and specifically duck and cover. So besides the specific advice, what really sort of got my dander up was this notion that one would be able to take meaningful actions to moderate or manage the experience of a nuclear explosion and that your ability to recover once the explosion was over would be orderly, methodical, socially enabled. And that's that's just insane. And so in a sense, after reading five, six, seven, eight of these articles, I felt like, well, I really need to point out how ridiculous it is and how the, the primary message you're being given is that this is this is a manageable event. And that's crazy. One of the effects of these articles and all of this discourse is that it functions to normalize the use of nuclear weapons, to make people feel like if nuclear weapons are used, this will be okay. This is something that I can react to. I can take steps to make myself safe. And recovery will be a matter of education and training. If I know what to do, then things will work out well for me. It's like what people are told in connection with earthquakes or tornadoes. You have your three days of water. You have your three days of food. You fill your bathtub with water. And there are basics about first aid and the like. But nuclear, an atomic bomb going off is a very different kind of a disaster with far deeper, more long-lasting, and more catastrophic repercussions. Absolutely. Earthquakes obviously can be terrible, and they can cause a lot of damage, tsunamis, things like this. But there are steps you can take if you are in a fortunate position, if you're in a good place to mitigate those things. And they happen in small enough locations that mechanisms of society do begin to click in in order to start recovery. With nuclear war and with nuclear detonations, it's far more problematic than that. It's not the same as preparing for a natural disaster, which is the way it was construed in most of the American civil defense literature in the 50s, that it was like preparing for a tornado or it was like preparing for an earthquake. It's entirely of a different magnitude. And the consequences afterwards being in a radiologically contaminated environment are not the same as recovering from the simple physical destruction of an earthquake or tornado. One of the articles that I saw that truly shocked me was in the Washington Post of all places, which I think would know better. It was entitled, How to Prepare for a Nuclear Attack. And they cited a woman who is with the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health. And this one really got me. On the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, the people who just the other day moved the hands of the doomsday clock another 30 seconds towards midnight. How can it be 
that people in positions of authority who you think would know better would spout things such as, and this is a quote from the article, I would honestly say that duck and cover response from the Cold War era is really the best protection that we as individuals would have after a nuclear bomb or improvised nuclear device is detonated. How can they even believe that? I'm not sure exactly who who was being quoted there, but people who are in the business of public health do have these management models these risk assessment and management models. And so it's the discourse that surrounds this kind of thing. That kind of statement is is just seriously ridiculous. It takes somebody who really has, in a sense, who really wants to confront the situation to say, no, duck and cover things are, are futile. These kinds of behaviors are, I mean, are first of all, not anything that most people could accomplish in an effective way. They're not going to assist you, except in very rare situations, will it actually make a measurable difference? I saw an an astonishing array of people being publicly interviewed and offering advice, people who certainly all should know better. So I, I can't explain it, but this is the reason that I became so upset and needed to write this article, because people in my own field who've studied civil defense were repeating talking points that I'm sure that they understand are insane. And of course, once these articles get embedded in the internet, anyone doing a search to find out can go there and be made to feel better based on false information. So give us a sense. You're with the Hiroshima Peace Institute. Give us a sense of what is known from the personal experience of the Hibakusha, the survivors of the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What it was like in the immediate aftermath of those bombs being dropped for the people? Well, of course, in this case, people didn't even understand at all what a nuclear weapon was. Nobody did. Few people did at the time. So when the bomb is detonated, and this is one of the things that you would be told in civil defense literature, the very first thing you perceive is the bright white flash of the detonation. The other effects of the bomb, the blast wave, the intense heat, and the intense burst of gamma radiation, those things all have happened within a second. So from the point of perceiving this bright white flash, essentially you are no longer in a position to take any effective actions that can mitigate or alter the impact of those effects on you. People here in Hiroshima or people in Nagasaki, when those weapons were detonated, they were instantly in a different world. They were instantly in a world in which The blast wave had destroyed most of the buildings. The heat had caused many buildings to catch fire. And everybody's body within a few kilometers had been penetrated by a burst of gamma radiation. So that's the way it is one second after you've detected this bright white flash. So at that point, you're essentially in the midst of that detonation. There there is no running to get behind a wall. There is no going downstairs into a basement. Nobody had... A capacity to do that. The notion that at the moment of detonation, you could take any meaningful actions because you practiced, it's similar to thinking, for example, that if I just practice being in a high-speed car wreck, I'll be able to behave the right way when I'm in a high-speed car wreck. It's not something that you have the ability to take actions during the event itself. It just happens. And all the preparation in the world really doesn't alter the way that it affects you. Even if you think, for example, with the missile alert in Hawaii, 
if you want to take meaningful action, for example, to get behind a wall or to get inside a building, you would have to be prescient. You would have to be psychic enough to know where this bomb is going off. Uh, in the duck and cover video, you see children get behind a wall. Well, conveniently in the duck and cover video, the bomb is always going off on the other side of the wall rather than on the side they're on. So essentially, at the point that the missiles are flying, you, you have very little control over your destiny. It's in the hands of the militarists, the people who've launched the attack, and in the hands of fate. Does the weapon go off close to you? Does the weapon go off far away from you? Only if you're quite far away from the weapon will you be in a position to take steps that could mitigate the impacts of the detonation itself. But if you're anywhere within the range of the weapon, essentially almost any action you take is going to be meaningless. So training and education uh, are not going to put you in a position where you're going to substantially increase your odds of survival or the quality of your health after the impact of the bomb. Uh, and to suggest that to people is to suggest that the time to prepare for is after the missiles fly, rather than that the time to be taking actions is before they fly to keep this event from happening. We'll revisit that thought, but it occurs to me that with this sudden rush of articles, yes, it may be a journalistic impulse and bad or sloppy research or just a bunch of ignorance. At the same time, these days I'm always suspicious of intentional propaganda because certainly there has been a wave of information and a twisting of material here in the States to make nuclear war seem inevitable that we're just going to have cute little tactical bombs that sometimes when they say it's 15, it's only going to be 15 kilotons, I go, wait a minute, that was the same size as Hiroshima. So do you think that there was any kind of possibly a planned or a pre-planned or an intentional nature? Or do you think this is just the zeitgeist and everybody thinking that they're being smart about these articles when they're just being done in the same way? I think that in the wake of the event in Hawaii, there's this void, and it was filled in by bad journalism, which is that people suddenly thought, oh my goodness, I may actually suffer a nuclear attack. And so that anxiety is filled with articles for you to click on for advertising. So it's first, it's primarily driven by capitalism, by the desire for clicks and readers and eyeballs. But ultimately, the discourse itself that's being offered is... I don't necessarily think that it's nefariously designed, but I think that, in other words, let's get this out there right now. I think that this kind of discourse is made available with nefarious purposes, and it's simply sucked up into the media stream when you know journalists are searching around for something to feed to us. But the design of this, part of the design of this kind of discourse, this anxiety and the theater around preparation for nuclear war is to soften us up to the notion that maybe we do have to attack North Korea. Maybe the threat to this country or to the world is so existential that the only proper course to solve this dilemma is to preemptively attack. So it, it manufactures this kind of anxiety and fear, manufactures support for actions that we believe will mitigate it. How do we stop North Korea from attacking us? Well, we attack them. Obviously, we all know this is how nuclear wars start. This isn't how nuclear wars are prevented. And as you say, when it, when it comes to the kinds of discussions about tactical, strategic use of weapons, it's really fairly ridiculous. For example, for those of us who pay attention to nuclear weapons, there's the famous video of the one 
firing of the atomic cannon at the Nevada test site. And you see a cannon firing across a range of the test site, and then you see a mushroom cloud of the detonation. This is a tactical battlefield weapon. And as you point out, the yield of that weapon was the same as the yield here in Hiroshima. The notion that these kinds of tactical, smaller nuclear weapons will not end up in a larger nuclear war are based on the ridiculous notion that when you attack a country, their response will not be emotional and defensive. They've been attacked and they're going to strike back, which is, of course, the way we feel we would behave. But instead, that they're going to go out and measure the exact yield of this bomb. They're going to say, oh, well, that wasn't as big as it might have been. And therefore, this isn't a serious attack. So our response will be measured. It's, again, this notion that even in entering into a nuclear war, one can take calculated measures that will have reasoned and measured responses. It's this illusion of control, which is throughout this discourse, that we have control over how the bomb will affect us, that we have control over how our enemies will respond when we attack them with nuclear weapons, just by choosing a slightly smaller one rather than a slightly larger one. But the purpose of a lot of this discourse is essentially to generate support for taking action and entering into war. This is partly why it's so dangerous, and it's so dangerous to just traffic in little advice about, oh, don't use conditioner or change your clothes. All, all of this makes it seem like, yeah, you know what? If we get into a nuclear war, things will go well for us. We'll be fine. What you said about anxiety and fear being implanted to move us in a direction towards expecting and then manifesting a nuclear war or a nuclear attack upon North Korea when I went back into the duck and cover film, which is both ludicrous and terrifying, one of the things I paid attention to were the subliminals that were put in. Now, I grew up during that era. I was a kid during the 1950s, and I lived in daily existential fear of the nuclear bomb going off. In looking at duck and cover and looking at some of the implants in the dialogue, first of all, they could not have had a narrator with a more sinister voice <laughs> that he really you know, put pedal to the metal a couple of times in a way that can scare kids when you get more intense. And some of the direct quotes were, just remember, the flash of an atomic bomb can happen at any time, no matter where you may be. One of them was said to be happening on a beautiful spring day. What to do if a bomb explodes right then? The bomb can explode any time of the year, day or night. We must obey the civil defense worker and stay covered till the danger is over, which in my case would be living under my bed for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> but... It's these kind of implants that set my generation up for, as I said, and as I lived with, the existential fear of nuclear bombs at all times. My fear is that somehow by what's going on now, with much more control over subliminals and more psychological understanding, the propaganda is going to keep rolling out, but now it's going to be a new generation and it's going to put younger people today in the exact frame of mind so that, again, they are much more likely to go along with the thought of nuclear war. 
unlike our generation who grew up with the Cold War threat and the civil defense propaganda, young people today, the primary way that they've encountered nuclear weapons is in video games and also in some movies. And in these settings, especially in video games, you know, one is taking actions, making decisions, and nuclear weapons are a part of how the game unfolds rather than the end of the game. And so there's really not a visceral sense of what these weapons do. After the end of the Cold War, there was a series of movies, especially in the, in the 90s, in which nuclear weapons were repurposed in film as savior weapons, weapons that will save the Earth from a comet, weapons that will stop an alien invasion. And in all of these cases, they're used as a last resort to save the world. And so the true dystopian experience of these weapons is something that's not portrayed really at all for us. And I would say that for our generation, it was more visceral. I believe that Duck and Cover, there was another film, Atomic Alert, and several other films in that era had a very profound and unintended effect on our generation. You know, the theory behind these films was that if children are at school, then teachers will tell them what to do. If children are at home, then parents will tell them what to do. But children may experience nuclear attack when they're alone, when they're playing, when they're, when they're you know, uh, riding their bicycle, when they're on the way to school. And so we need to train them how to behave by themselves so they will have the training to know how to survive a nuclear attack. And in doing that, in setting out to do that, Duck and Cover and these other videos do exactly what you say, which is they, one after another, take all of the what was for American children, the safe settings of childhood in the 1950s and the 1960s, playing in the park, riding your bike, going to a scouts meeting. It takes all of these normal daily things and it turns each one of them into a moment of intense fear and destruction. So the message that we were given as kids was at no time in your life can you stop being vigilant? Can you relax? No matter how safe you feel, no matter how much fun and distraction in childhood you feel, that moment may be the moment of warfare. That moment may be the moment where you are on the front lines of a nuclear war. And the deeper underlying message was that at this moment, adults will not be there to help you. You will face nuclear weapons alone. And I believe that that created, a, as you yourself put it, a very existential crisis in this generation of baby boomer kids who grew up under the threat of the Cold War. The notion was nuclear war could happen at any moment. You are never safe and adults won't be there to help you when it happens. And so almost universally, people from this generation in writing memoirs, their memories of duck and cover and other atomic exercises like that is one of being down on the ground and coming to the conclusion that the adults are insane, that they're insane to think that this is going to help me, that this danger is an insane world that they've built. And I think it led to a lot of the generational alienation and conflict. Having a childhood in which you're essentially told the end of the world is near, you will be alone. It can happen at any moment. Yeah, you are never safe. You are never able to relax. I mean, Tony riding his bicycle in duck and cover, he's riding his bicycle down the street. And he, the moment there's a flash, he simply leaps off his bicycle and rolls to the curb. So every moment he's riding his bicycle, he is supposed to be ready to fly off his bicycle 
and jump to and jump behind a, a wall or a curb. That's not a way to have a childhood full of fun. It's never ever safe is the message that was being given. And of course, truly it was never safe while we were all under the threat of these weapons and while we remain under the threat of these weapons. Essentially, all of this is in preparation for the use of these weapons aggressively. It's really what it is in preparation for. It's not really in preparation for defensive reaction to these weapons, but rather normalize the aggressive use of these weapons. So given that there's really nothing that we can do once a bomb explodes, once nuclear bomb, atomic bomb, whatever you want to call it, has exploded, what can we do beforehand? to prepare? What we can do beforehand to prepare is political action. We need to stop normalizing the possession and deployment of these weapons. So steps, for example, like the nuclear ban treaty are the kind of organized activity that we need to engage in. We as Americans in our country, just like all of the other nuclear powers, our country refuses to participate in the treaty. We need to exert pressure on them to first of all, participate in the treaty. But beyond that, we need to call into question the vast amount of spending that our government commits itself to in order to maintain this deployed nuclear weaponry. As you know, Obama began a program, a trillion dollar, over a trillion dollar program of modernizing nuclear weapons, essentially repurposing and building new nuclear weapons, new deployment mechanisms, new delivery systems, new infrastructure for command and control. This is a trillion dollars that we could get much more security from if it was to provide us with more stable lives in which people don't lose their homes, in which people are not bankrupt from medical bills. So we need to begin to pressure our government to move away from its reliance on nuclear weaponry because of these insane dangers, but also because of the fact that they do not actually provide us any security at all. So the things we can do really to prevent and to make ourselves safe are things we have to do long before these weapons are in the air on missiles. At that point, we have surrendered control. The illusion we're given from all of these articles that those are times in which we will have control in which we can take meaningful action, that is ridiculous. At that moment, we are in the hands of people who have engaged in war. So all of the things we can do to protect ourselves from nuclear weapons have to be done long before these weapons are deployed and flying and in the air on their way to us. That is not a time in which we can take meaningful action anymore. That is a time in which we have surrendered ourselves. So we should not surrender ourselves before that happens. That's the time in which we can take meaningful action, and we need to move our governments, for example, in the United States, to move our government away from having these weapons on alert status so that it is not possible for somebody, in this case today, President Trump, to launch these weapons in five or ten minutes. That makes everybody in the world less safe. For every country that has these weapons on alert status, we are less safe. So even steps like that, let's get these weapons off alert status, let's decommission a lot of these weapons and get rid of them. The, the United States and Russia have weapons still in the thousands. Uh, even the other large nuclear states like the UK and France and China have two or 300 weapons. It's still too many, but to bring the US and Russia down to two or 300 weapons would be a phenomenal step towards making this world safe. 
And that would provide safety and security for us far more than knowing not to use conditioner or thinking that we have a room in our house that's nuclear weapon proof. Sounds like it's time to dust off those old ban the bomb buttons. Political action is the only way out of this mess. We'll do what we can to support it, Bo. Well, you're doing that with this podcast, so keep getting the word out there, Levine. Dancing as fast as I can. Bo Jacobs, a.k.a. Robert Jacobs, when you write an article, it was so funny. I was reading this thing and going, have to interview this guy. have to interview this guy. I wonder how I can get to him. And then I realized it was you. I want to thank you again for being articulate, passionate, informed, and a really great guest to have here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Bo Jacobs of the Hiroshima Peace Institute. His article is entitled, We Cannot Survive a Nuclear Attack by Ducking and Covering. And we will have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 345. In case you missed it, we will once again post the original Duck and Cover film, so you will be able to see for yourself what we've been talking about. We will also have the video of that nuclear cannon that was used once in a test of a possible technical weapon. Of course, it was launched on Nevada. I hadn't ever seen this footage before Bo mentioned it, and it's quite illuminating. Activist shout-out! A reminder that the film Atomic Homefront which is about the activist struggle in North St. Louis against extraordinary forces, is going to be on HBO as of February 12th. This is the documentary that's forcing the hand of EPA head Scott Pruitt to finally take action on the Westlake landfill in North St. Louis. And we will have an interview with Dawn Chapman, founder of the Just Moms of North St. Louis and featured in the film, as one of our interviews for next week's show. Here's today's final thought. With the emphasis these days by the government on quote-unquote tactical nuclear weapons, meaning smaller, cuter, ever-so-usable nuclear bombs, few people understand the actual impact of a nuclear detonation. Maybe not regular listeners to the show, But there are a lot of people out there who don't yet listen, and they're the ones I'm talking about. As you heard from Bo Jacobs, the wrong impression is being reinforced by all those articles parroting disaster prep guidelines and the old civil defense duck and cover film. Disinformation fueled by bad journalism, pro-nuclear propaganda, and flat-out ignorance is creating a populace that is seriously deluded about what a nuclear detonation would mean. No one who has seen pictures of Hiroshima in the immediate aftermath of the atomic bomb can possibly imagine that stashing three days of food and water and having a supply of money and small bills and change will have any impact on your surviving the fireball and intense radiation exposure that follows. Running to hide in your bathroom with a full tub of water, will make no difference because if you're in the detonation zone, neither the water, the bathtub, the building, or you will get through it. Instantaneous evaporation. You won't even know what hit you. 
Bo Jacobs and I discussed movies about nuclear holocaust and both agreed that the day after, ABC's monumental 1984 TV movie was among the best at depicting the post-apocalyptic horror faced by the people who managed to survive. Its pre-CGI animation graphics of what happens to a person when the bomb blast hits haunted me even 34 years after I originally saw it. I checked back into the film this week to see if I had remembered it correctly. I had. And the visual image for this episode is a screenshot from that film. Not a pretty picture, but then nothing about atomic weaponry is. We'll have a link up to the full film the day after on our website for this week's show, number 345. At minimum, Watch it from approximately 55 minutes in to 59 minutes in. That's when the bombs drop, and we get to see what it does to people, people we've come to know through the beginning of the film. It remains an excellent visualization of nuclear hell on Earth. So how can such simplistic advice as duck and cover counteract the devastation of a nuclear blast? It can't. So the question becomes, how can any honest, self-respecting journalist or public health worker or scientist or government official or anyone other than a pro-nuke shill actually believe that rubbish, let alone promote it? The United States, as well as other nuclear nations, all have hell-making megabombs pointed at each other. This very minute, even as you are listening to my voice. In the United States, they're kept on high alert, no more than five minutes away from potential launch, meaning, to borrow the words of Beatrice Finn of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, who said this in her Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, our mutual destruction is only one impulsive tantrum away. And realize... We're talking about really big bombs here. Hiroshima, for all its horror, was a mere pipsqueak of a nuke at 15 kilotons. And that's the size that they're talking about when they say small tactical bombs. So no, duck and cover is a sick joke with no humor attached. I dare journalists and the entertainment media, to put out honest reporting, honest stories that depict the true devastation of nuclear war so that our undereducated, nuclear-ignorant population will finally have a fighting chance to get it. And get it, as always, with fingers crossed that they will before it's too late. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat, for Tuesday, January 30th, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net and Sean Arclight, duenrenard.wordpress.com and Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, tri-cityherald.com and Eric Carey, seattlecs.com, king 5 and Susanna Frank, stlpublicradio.org, thehill.com, wame.org, forbes.com, mainichi.jp, asahi.com, japantimes.co.jp, 
blog.torikesu.net, stltoday.com, thebulletin.org, itv.com, timesofindia.com, mkg.se.en, thelocal.se, thespec.com, defense1.com, the karmically damaged cubicle slaves grinding out press releases for world nuclear news. There are so many better things you can do with that writing talent, darling. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers literally around the world. You are the ones who show your love for life on this planet by being the defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of nuclear awareness that you are. My eternal thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook and checking out the website and doing social media and all the rest. So if you haven't yet, be sure to stop by on Facebook at Nuclear Hot Seat, either the podcast or the blog site, and click like, follow us, comment, post, be part of the community. If you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, contact me with their info at info at nuclearhotseat.com, and I will be very happy to follow up. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Did you know you can get Nuclear Hot Seat via email every week? Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, and sign up for the weekly email link to the latest show. I won't bug you with email. You'll just get the one a week. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And if you appreciate weekly, verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red donate button. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, once again reminding you that, as former Soviet Prime Minister Nikita Khrushchev famously said of the aftermath of a nuclear war, the living will envy the dead. To which we add, let's not ever find out for real. There, you have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.